0: I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. That's our text for this morning. Mark chapter 6. It's on page 841 of the Pew Bible in front of you. You know, some people live their whole life on the fence. Or at least they think they do. When we say that someone is on the fence, we're using a word picture to describe indecision at an inflection point. Imagine that you have 100 acres of land and that your neighbor has 100 acres and between you and them is a white picket fence. The fence is the boundary between the two properties. And the fence is designed to keep things in your property and to keep some things out of your property. And the reason for it is that the goals and the characteristics of your property is different than that of your neighbors. The fence divides the line between the two domains. You might even say the two different ideals for the space, maybe even the two different mini kingdoms. And if you go over the fence, you will receive the benefits of the li- and liabilities of that domain. But if you stay on this side of the fence, you will receive the benefits and the liabilities of this domain. And if you sit on the fence or ride the fence, you live in indecision because you want the benefits of both domains but the liabilities of neither. And depending upon the decision, you might be able to do that. Or that indecision might mean that you actually get neither, the full benefit or the liabilities. And so you might be on the fence. You might be on the fence about which college to go to. You might be on the fence about whether or not you should continue in a relationship Or maybe you're on the fence about which car to buy or which job to pursue or which fitness plan to go on. You could be on the fence about whether to stay or whether to move. You could be on the fence about little things or on the fence about big things. Being on the fence is an inflection point, but it's an inflection point that will ultimately require a decision. And some people try to stay on the fence for a very long time. And maybe even they think they can do it for the rest of their life. And some people are on the fence with God. Should I submit to him or not? Should I follow him with my whole life or just seek The ancillary benefits. Can I have it my way and his way? Can I stay on the fence? And that's where Mark 6 leads us today. It's the story of King Herod, his wife, and John the Baptist. And we learn something tragic about being on the fence. So follow with me. In Mark 6, starting at verse 14, this is what it says: It says. King Herod heard of it. What did he hear of? He heard of the disciples going about through the region, casting out demons, anointing the sick and healing them, and many people coming to forgiveness in Christ. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. King Herod Antipas was a man who tried to stay on the fence. In some ways, it was the way of his family as a whole, but nobody can stay on the fence forever. You see, Herod was a title. It was a ruling or kingly title, and he was part of a small dynasty. His father, King Herod the Great, had a long reign over the Jewish provinces. He himself was a Jew who governed the area for the Roman Empire. Now, talk about riding the fence. A Jew ruling over Jews against their will for the sake of the Romans. He was the leader who upon hearing the prophecy about a coming king and kingdom and seeing the star in the sky over Bethlehem ordered the slaughter of all the male children under two years old in the region surrounding Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, of course, warned by an angel, fled to Egypt, and Jesus' young life was spared. A few years later, King Herod the Great died. But before his death, he didn't make his line of succession clear. And so for his many sons by his different wives, they all came forth and vied for power and position. And eventually the Roman Empire ended up dividing the kingdom of Palestine into four districts. One of his sons... Herod Antipas, that Herod mentioned here, became the tetrarch of the second most desirable region in Galilee and Perea. He wasn't actually a king like his father. He was a tetrarch, a governor of the region. But he thought of himself as a king and he made other people call him a king. And he tried to live Like a king, like father, like son, a Jew governing over a Jewish region against the will of the people for and under the authority of the anti-Jews, the Roman Empire who had conquered them, another Herod sitting on the fence. Herod's goal was to keep the region calm, to gain favor with the Roman emperor, Tiberius. And so when John the Baptist went about calling people to repent and thousands of people wandered out into the wilderness to hear him preach and to be baptized, the commotion was a bit too much for the Tetrarch. And in political motivation, there was reason to arrest him. Didn't want word getting back to the emperor that the region was unstable. So John the baptizer was most likely in a dungeon in the massive fortress and palace that Herod had built on the cliffs of the Dead Sea. The walls of the fortress were thick. The walls were high, an estimated 240 feet tall, flanked by high towers around them. And inside the fortress was an ornate and beautiful palace and a dark Dungeon. Herod's personal life was anything but simple. Kings usually take what they want, and that was no exception for Herod when he saw a woman that he wanted. This woman was the daughter of his half brother, and so that made her his niece. She was married to a different half brother, Herod Philip. And that made her his sister-in-law. But Herod Antipas seduced her to leave her husband and to become his wife. And so Herod married his niece, who was also his sister-in-law, and her name was Herodias. I wonder what they named their kids. John the Baptist was unlike any one else the world had ever met. That's a strong statement, but it's not a statement just by me. For as little as we know about him, he's mentioned at a couple different places early in the gospels and then here upon his death, he received the highest regard from Jesus who was his cousin. In Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, Jesus says, "Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." meaning Jesus himself. John was a Nazarite, which meant his parents didn't cut his hair and he didn't cut his hair, that he lived by a strict purity code. He functioned like a prophet of old and even dressed like the prophets of old to communicate his message. And his message was like the prophets of old as they came out of the wilderness and people came to hear them preach a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Get right with God, turn away from your sin, and be purified. Jesus, in fact, called him more than a prophet. There was no sitting on the fence with John. He was the opposite of Herod in this way. He wasn't trying to play both sides. He was full of conviction and resolve and prepared the way for Jesus. He was holy in his actions and represented holiness to those who he called to repent. And when he saw that Herod had married his niece, half-sister Herodias, and still claimed to be a Jew, verse 18 tells us that John confronted him. And he reminded Herod that it was not lawful for him to marry her, no matter how attractive she was or no matter what his heart would tell him. John persisted with the message of repentance for everybody, including Herod, to repent for marrying Herodias. And as a result, Herodias was embarrassed and angry. So Herod had him arrested Politically to keep the peace in the region and personally to keep the peace at home. And verses 19 to 20 tell us a bit about the relationship between John and Herod. And these two verses are really the key to understanding what is all happening on the inside here. Because what you see is a conscience that is on the fence. It says... Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Let's make a couple of observations. Herod knew that John was righteous and holy, so he feared him. His anger and his wife's anger caused him to imprison John and to push him away, and yet he still feared him. You know, sometimes when people are confronted with their sin and they're engaged with a person who's righteous, they immediately become angered or revolted They aren't necessarily revolted by the person, they could be, but very often they're revolted by the holiness that the person represents because holiness can have a repelling effect on people. The reason for this is that deep down inside, we all want to live our own lives our own way. (laughs) That we want to be the king of our domain. And in ourselves, we certainly don't want to submit to another king, a king named Jesus. And this self-determination and rebellion wells up within us. It comes out as anger at the even idea of righteousness or holiness. And we don't want to recognize that there's another way we should be doing something. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. When you engage with somebody and they find out that you're a Christian and they are automatically repelled, not because of anything you've said or even did, but because of what you represent. R.C. Sproul illustrates this aspect of holiness, reminding us of a little book by a German theologian called Rudolf Otto. And the book was translated under the English title, title, The Idea of the Holy. What Otto did And that is so interesting is that he went around and examined people from different cultures around the world, Aborigines and Europeans and different types of people. And he tried to find out what they regarded as holy or sacred in their culture. And then he did studies phenomenologically to see the normal human reactions to the holy. And after making this study, he tried to distill the essence of the human experience of the holy, and come up with some conclusions. And he would come up with these conclusions and invent phrases to describe them. And so if you would ask him, Dr. Otto, what is the holy? His answer, because he had a Latin term for everything, was the mysterium tremendum. What does he mean by that? He means that the experience that we have of the holy is an experience of something very strange, impossible to penetrate or fathom. It's mysterious, but it is also powerful. The awesome, mysterious power provokes a sense of fear within us. Listen to how Otto describes what he calls this awful mystery. He says, The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul as you interact with the holy, continuing as it were, thrilling, vibrant, and resonant until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. Then he goes on to describe, it may burst into a sudden eruption from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions or lead to the strangest excitements to intoxicated frenzy, to transport, and to ecstasy. It has the wild and demonic forms that can sink into almost grisly horror and shuddering as you interact with something holy. He describes the fact that not everybody responds in the same way to the awareness of the holy. Some people become whirling dervishes and all kinds of flamboyant activity, and other people are moved to absolute silence and contemplation and he detected in his study of the holy that across the board throughout varying civilizations the basic response of human beings to experiencing something holy is to have conflicting feelings there is something about the holiness of god that attracts us and there is something that repels us or frightens us on the one hand it fascinates And on the other hand, it terrifies. And Herod and Herodias are angered by the holiness that John represents, and it repels them. And Herod, at the same time being perplexed, listens to him gladly because it attracts him. That is the nature of holiness and our response to it. And so in verse 20, you see Herod's interaction with John results in him being perplexed, but he would hear him gladly. And so you can almost imagine what that might've been like because Herod never had to hear him if he didn't want to. You can almost imagine him summoning the prisoner to his chamber to discuss the things of life. And he would ask questions to John about God and this message of repentance and the coming of this Jesus that he had heard about. And John would speak confidently and boldly just as the prophet Elijah had done. And Herod was perplexed and he'd think on it and he wouldn't change his actions because there was so much to lose. But his mind wouldn't let it go he would stay on the fence. Something was happening in his conscience. And so a few days later, he'd stroll down to the dungeon and would lean up against the cell. And he'd ask a couple of follow-up questions to the things they'd been talking about before. And he'd think about that for a minute. And then he would go on his way. His conscience was gnawing at him about these things that John had said, and it was making him think about about things that he had never thought about before, and he was happy for that. Something was going on inside of there. Perhaps he was tired of the politics, and the social climbing, and the backstabbing that occurs in a king's court, and the words of John the baptizer were life-giving and stimulating, but to repent would mean that he would have to give up So many things, so many things that he liked, so many things he thought brought him fulfillment. To repent would mean his status would change, his promiscuous lifestyle would be halted, the opulence in which he lived in would be threatened. And so he would listen and he'd think and it would gnaw at him, but he would not repent. There was too much to give up. He would rather protect John and continue to have the stimulation and access of the mind and even the soul while living his own life his own way. He would stay on the fence. Time went by. Herod preserved John's life. He had a tremendous opportunity to turn to God, but despite the opportunity, He would firmly position that conscience of his right on the fence. Perhaps he thought he could live that way for the rest of his days. But then it was his birthday. And it was time for a party. And so verse 21 tells us that Herod threw a big kingly birthday party for himself. Nobles and military men and leading men of the community were all there. They're present for the grand dinner. The food was excellent. The meat was superb. The wine was of the highest quality. And as was all often the case in kingly-type parties. The succulent treats were consumed and the music was playing and the party would go late into the night and the alcohol was flowing and Herodias, Herod's wife, saw her opportunity. Late in the hours of the evening, with the music playing, she sent her teenage daughter, Salome, out into the hall, scantily clad to give a sensual dance for the king, and for all the guests to enjoy. This appeal to the masculine desires was common to have dancers of this type and these types of parties in the ancient world, but most of the dancers were typically hired professionals or prostitutes who were there to please the drunk men. But not tonight. Salome a woman of stature came into the hall with all of her beauty and charm and all the eyes of the room were on her. And as she finished, the crowd erupted in applause and cheering and their senses were piqued. And verse 22 says, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. That's how enjoyable the experience was. He had so much. Only a king could offer such a thing. And the crowd cheered the generosity. And the king made an oath that he would give up to half of his kingdom. What would she choose? Fine jewelry. A new stallion. Expensive clothing from a far-off land. These are the types of things that you would expect a teenage girl to ask for. What should she choose? She retreats to her mother for advice. And the response was chilling and calculated. The head of John the Baptist. And she came, verse 25 immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And she added, just for the sake of a party, on a platter. What? What did you say? Herod must have said. Herodias has finally done it, he thought. The music stopped, the chill entered the air, and Herod knew that his conscience would no longer be on the fence. And verse 26 says that this grieved him. He was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He still had a chance right there in that moment to do the right thing, but in his mind, it would cost him too much. His conscious conscience was now tipped over the fence to the other side. He immediately had John, the greatest man on earth, according to Jesus, other than Jesus himself. He immediately had the greatest man on earth, other than Christ, beheaded. You see, you can't stay on the fence forever. Sooner or later, you gotta make a choice some of us have been trying to do that with God we've been trying to stay on the fence we've been trying to continue to engage the things that we want we want what we want we want what we want even if those things are opposed to God and we want the benefits of a relationship with God as well and so we want to have it both and if we don't repent And go completely toward God, what often happens is that we do our evil things, our sinful things. We are convicted of sin in some way, shape, or form. We try to ride the fence of conviction and do not respond to our conscience. We push those things away and we pretend that our sinful deeds never happened. We we rewrite history in our minds. We lie to ourselves or we minimize the significance of what is actually going on as we try to keep our conscience held together on the fence. Have you ever done that before? I have done that plenty of times. Maybe some of you are even living that way right now. You want what you want. And you want to ride the fence because you want the God stuff too. But here's the truth. Your conscience... Can't stay on the fence forever. You can't. You must choose to follow Christ or you will choose at some point to just follow yourself. Another way to say that is that if you don't yield to Christ, you will yield to your sin. Another way to say that is that if you don't turn away from your sin, your sin will ultimately turn you. John, or Herod, did not want to kill John. He never thought he was going to actually get to that place. But if you don't turn from your sin, your sin will ultimately turn you. Michelangelo's final work was called the Rodinini Pietà, the sculpture on which he worked for ten years. And Giorgio Vasari, a contemporary of Michelangelo's, wrote that Michelangelo ended up breaking the block of the sculpture, probably because it was full of impurities and was so hard that sparks flew under his chisel. Imagine 10 years, and then the block is broken. The sculpture was rescued by a servant, and it survives to this day. It bears the marks of Michelangelo's chisel, but... None of the beauty of his earlier work. What happened? Well, another sculptor named Lorenzo Dominguez once summarized a dilemma that's unpredictable, the unpredictability of working with stone. He said it this way, very simply. Stone wants to be stone. And the artist wants it to be art. (laughs) The same dilemma exists for those of us who are the work of God's hands As God works to bring people into his kingdom to free the image of Christ that's within us, he begins chipping away at our self-determination. He does this through our conscience and through the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the stone of our lives either submits to the chipping or it resists. If we submit, the features of the Savior begin to emerge from our life. If we submit long enough, the ultimate work of glory is revealed. If, however, the life resists and continues to resist, there's a day when God will let the stone be stone. C.S. Lewis said as much when he stated that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say thy will be done and those whom God says, okay, Go ahead and have it your way. You know, this wasn't the last time that we would see Herod in the New Testament. A year or two later, he pops up again. He's a different man by then. And this time he has an opportunity to either support or reject the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says this in Luke chapter 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently, accusing him and Herod with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and they mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day for before they had been at enmity with each other. Sad to see, just a few short years, Herod's conscience had gone from being open to God to be completely dead to God. He wanted to see Jesus, but not to have conversations with him like he had with John the Baptist, He wanted to see Jesus, but not to inquire if he was the one that his father, Herod the Great, had been trying to kill and therefore killed all the innocents. He wanted to see Jesus, but not to see God. He was curious to see Jesus, but only because he wanted to be amused and entertained by his miracles. And that's it. His conscience was seared. And Jesus wouldn't even speak to him. You see, you can't stay on the fence forever with God. If you don't turn from your sin, your sin will turn you. And so what about you? Are you on the fence or are you firmly Within his domain, are there areas of your life that you don't have surrendered to Christ just yet? Do you have prevailing sins that you haven't repented of, hoping that you can keep them and still keep the benefits of God? Is God convicting you or compelling you to act, to change, to yield? And are you still resisting? You can't stay on the fence forever. If you don't yield to Christ, you will yield to your sin. If you don't turn from your sin, your sin will turn you. But here's the good news God is gracious, He's kind, He's quick to forgive, and He invites you to come to Him. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit who is the one that convicts us of sin, who compels us toward holiness, who softens our hearts to you, be doing that very work right now. And may we push him aside no longer. Amen. Friends, some of us have a decision to make. The decision is very simply, are we gonna follow our own way or are we gonna follow Christ? And he calls us to come. And I wanna encourage you, uh, don't wait to make that decision because if you do, then you will do the things that you've just done before, which is take whatever conviction the Lord is giving you and you'll wait it out and push it aside until you don't feel that so acutely. Others of us have a different decision to make, and that is we've followed Christ or professed our faith, but we're still dabbling in those areas of sin. And the same is applicable. Don't wait to respond in repentance. Don't wait. He's so gracious and loving to forgive, and you will be in a much better place when he does that in your life. If you need prayer around any of those things, we'd love to pray with you today. Please come forward. There'll be people up here to pray with you and to encourage you as you turn back to the Lord in that way. And as you go, be encouraged. God is the one who does this work in us as much as we have a volitional response to him. That he is the one who is enacting these good things in you. And so that's why Paul writes in Romans 16, our doxology for today, which is, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you as you go.